The text this morning comes from the sixth chapter of Ephesians, verses 5 through 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleaser, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them. and Stop your threatening. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Father, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us and that you would instruct us both in mind and heart very clearly from your word. We ask, O King, that your blessing would abide upon us as we worship you by the hearing and the putting of your word into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, last week we began looking at the issue of slavery in the scriptures by exploring the origins of slavery to help us understand more clearly why slavery has been a ubiquitous feature of human existence for our whole history everywhere, on every inhabited continent. There's no one group that sort of perpetrated all this on everybody else. Everybody did it. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons why it's important to discuss this issue today uh, and to discuss it in some detail is precisely because the people who are manning our universities and making our movies and our books really believe that they have a superior morality to the morality that is proclaimed in the Bible. They really think that uh, the information that Jesus gives about human life and what the good is and how to flourish is hopelessly mistaken and oppressive, and they have a better system. They have a better morality. And when your grandchildren or your children go to college, they will be catechized in this better, so to speak, morality. And so the issues with which uh, the world likes to beat us concerning what the Bible says revolve around the issues of women. And we talked about that with husbands and wives, and I was very careful to talk about that one. Uh, with the issue of slavery, um, less so with the issue of the, uh, the attacks on the promised land when the children of Israel went in to take over the promised land. And, uh, and then, of course, the issue of homosexuality and transgenderism. And they think Christian morality is fundamentally broken and wicked. And they point to these areas in the scripture as their, as their proof that um, the whole Christian enterprise is a mistake. So it's important to be able to defend the Bible where it's actually being attacked. And that's why I'm, I'm doing this. And I'm, you know, fix this on the internet as a, hopefully a, uh, a resource for the future because someday some young person who you love and whose soul you're concerned about is going to come to you and say, if you're a Christian, what about these horrid stories in the Bible? You say you believe the Bible. What do you do with these things? Well, last week, I, I made just a few basic points. I, I uh, grounded the idea of the existence of slavery 
and, and found its origins in the fall. Uh, and I made just a few basic points. Number one, the fall made all work much harder and much less productive, especially the work of growing food. And God specifically cursed the ground and made it less productive. Second of all, the fall also ushered in a new reality for human beings of competition. Competition for the few resources that could help with the basic problem of getting enough to eat. And uh, those resources were, for instance, the most productive land or farm ground. And that could help with the food shortage issue. And so with that competition came violence and the threat of violence. So if you happen to occupy the most productive ground in an area and somebody stronger than you came along, they were going to try and kill you or run you off of that land so that they could have it for themselves. And that is a fundamental thing that happens all throughout human history. All of human history, everywhere on the whole planet, is strong groups taking things away from weak groups whenever they can, whenever it's important. We also have this innate drive, and this is my third point. Uh, we have an, an innate drive that is put in us by God to develop what we now call civilization. I talked about that as the dominion mandate or the creation mandate. But this drive now towards civilization, towards developing, is profoundly shaped by two things, by the threat of a shortage of food and by the threat of violence. And you would see in the ancient record, it's, it's interesting, most of you have probably never heard of a civilization that actually predates Mesopotamia. Um, and it was called the Indus River Valley Civilization. It was in India and Pakistan. And part of the reason is that we know very little about it because it was this magnificent, sophisticated civilization that collapsed so suddenly that everything was just kind of left sort of where the tools fell. And, it, and, and so as they've gone back and excavated, they've just been in awe of how sophisticated these people were so many thousands of years ago. And the civilization just collapsed, and it collapsed because they couldn't grow enough food. And so this was a real thing. You could have a very sophisticated civilization, and if you have a few bad harvests, everybody starves to death. And then they scatter, trying to find something to eat. And, and so this shapes civilization, and it shapes the ways we defend ourselves, like city walls and fortifications, and, and shapes how we do things like develop weapons and better weapons. If, you, if your only weapon is a club and somebody invents the bow and arrow, your club is obsolete and your group is dead. So there's this arms race going on. Fourthly, that arms race required people to give their lives to the pursuit of those kinds of knowledge. And every person who gives their life to wall building or weapons development isn't farming. And every farmer then has to raise enough food to feed himself and his family, plus all the people who aren't farming. And this is extraordinarily difficult. God had a solution for that. And it's the same solution preached throughout the whole of the scripture. Jesus crystallizes it in Matthew chapter 6 when he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the things that you're worried about. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? All these things will be added unto you. That's always been God's plan to deal with the fall. But human beings don't want to do that. They say you, you can't live that way. And so lost people, apart from God, can't and won't live that way. The only other option then, if you're going to try and solve this problem of not enough to eat and people trying to take it away from you, the only way to do this 
to solve this problem besides trusting God is to steal other people's labor. And that's where slavery comes from. God told Adam, you will earn your bread by the sweat of your face. And ever since then, Adam's sons have been trying to earn their bread by the sweat of someone else's face. And so when we understand that these are the basic facts of humanity under the fall, and you look back at human history and you see all these amazing developments of civilization, the architecture and engineering, you know, the, the ancient Egyptians built amazing things that we still travel halfway around the world to look at today. The Romans built these wonderful aqueducts that are still bringing water to towns in Spain 2,000 years later. They still work just fine. All of the developments of science and medicine, navigation, and harnessing energy, and all these things, all of these things from the dawn of civilization until today that civilization has developed are the result of a very small percentage of creative, productive, intelligent people who were only able to give their lives to that pursuit because they were resting or supported on a, on a system uh, of slavery and oppression and conquest and exploitation. And this is true whether we're exploiting the slaves or just the peasants. It's, this, is, this is human history apart from God. Somebody has to do things that they don't want to do for me so that I can do things that will make things better. That's the whole history. Now, now God has graciously guided that process, the, the process of human progress, and really when you look at the history of science through the eyes of faith and you, you see all the places where we accidentally discover something that is tremendously critical. It happens over and over and over again. Dallas Willard, a philosopher and historian of science, said uh, it's, it's all but inconceivable. You could just see the hand of God guiding human learning at crucial intervals. And God guided the whole of human progress to the point where slavery became unnecessary in the 19th century among the most technically advanced humans in the world because we discovered coal and oil. And we learned how to build machines that would harness that energy to do work. And then we develop better machines and better machines. And it's, we're to the point now where um, you can run a farm, a 2,000 acre farm with uh, three or four people. That's all you need to, to operate these massive machines. And so with that new reality, uh, uh, for a lot of people and Christian people in particular was this dream, can we do away with this institution? We don't like it. it that became possible. And that was a historic breakthrough. And these nations began freeing the slaves. And so the slaves were freed first in Europe, and then in the Americas, and then in South America. And Brazil was the last one to free the slaves in 1886, I believe. But slavery is not gone. It exists today. And it exists today in Africa in particular, especially the Muslim parts of Africa. It exists still in the Middle East, and it exists in China, where oppressed people groups who look like they're going to cause the Chinese government trouble, like the Muslim Uyghurs, are basically just rounded up in mass and put in concentration camps and made to work. And part of the work that they're doing is building our phones and the batteries that go into our phones. So everybody in here that has any kind of a device that has a lithium ion battery probably is benefiting from slavery, whether you know it or not. 
And, and so this is, this is how it is. This is human life apart from God. Now, because of the time and the place in which you and I live, we have a hard time conceiving of a world where our choices are not between good and evil, but rather between one kind of evil and another kind of evil. But this is a very common state of being throughout all of human history, and, and it persists even today. For instance, I don't know if you, how many of you were paying that close of attention to the, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and how disgraceful and disorderly that was. Well, when, when we just walked out the, of Afghanistan, a large part of their economy just completely collapsed because it was predicated on us being there paying for things. And I distinctly remember a news story about this man. I just, my heart went out to him, this, this Afghani man who sold his daughter into slavery because if he didn't, everyone in the family would starve to death. And if he sold his daughter into slavery, she would eat because her master would feed her and the proceeds would feed the family for a while until hopefully something better came along. And that was the man's choice. Either we all starve to death or I sell my daughter into slavery. That is really what most of human history has been like for most people. We are so incredibly blessed in this country in the age in which we live not to face choices like that. But a lot of the world still does. My friends in Africa still do. And so the Bible then understands that this is the, the way the world works. And it deals with the issue of slavery in two ways. First of all, the Bible does not out and out forbid slavery. We just got to say that right up front. You can look at the Bible from front to back and you can never find God saying, thou shalt not keep slaves. And this is true in the Old Testament and it's true in the New Testament. And so in that respect, it deals with the ancient world as it was. And it doesn't try to fix it according to our, our modern notions of how things ought to be because our modern notions of things like rights and freedom, uh, they just didn't exist. Those, those concepts didn't exist. Nobody had thought of them yet. And so if you told any ancient person that they have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, they would have just looked at you like you're crazy. They're like, where, where did you come up with that? Well, well you know, from the Constitution. Well, those, it just didn't exist. Nobody thought that way. Everybody looked at the way the world was and said, this is the way the world is and I can't really change it, so I guess I gotta function the best I can within this crummy world. That's how it was. And so the, a, a lot of things are, are put forward and, and you, uh, you begin to understand that God recognizes that slavery came about as a way for fallen human beings to try and manage a problem that really won't be solved until Christ returns. And so God in the Bible tolerates something that he obviously does not prefer. Now that's liable to be a, a new concept for you, that God will tolerate things that he does not prefer. He'll work around them. And there are other things like this too. For instance, polygamy. He lays out his basic plan for marriage right there at the beginning. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
And yet we find in the lives of his people, his faithful people who he blessed, Abraham having a wife that he didn't discard when she was found to be infertile, as would have been normal. So he was faithful in that way. But then when Sarah wants to solve the child problem, she gives Hagar to Abraham, and he lives with her as a concubine, basically as wife number two. David had multiple wives. So did Solomon. And God worked with it. And God blessed these men in spite of it without ever saying polygamy is a good thing. You know, it's interesting when we read the requirements for elder and deacon in, in our New Testaments, and we read them with American eyes, we read he has to be the husband of one wife. And we think, well, that is about divorce and remarriage. But once again, for my friends in Africa, that's about how many wives do you have? You can't be an elder in the church and have four wives, right? You can be a member of the church, but you can't be an elder in the church and have four wives. Well, so God obviously makes his preferences known. But there's, there are other issues too. The Bible, for instance, says that murder is a sin, but you're allowed to kill somebody in self-defense. You're explicitly allowed to kill somebody if they break into your home, or you're allowed to kill somebody as a soldier in wartime. And, uh, and God does not charge you with murder. Now, clearly, God does not prefer people killing others. I mean, he wouldn't let David build his temple precisely because God said, you're a man of blood. You can't do it. But God permits it under certain circumstances and does not charge us with sin if we kill under these circumstances. Third example, God is on record saying that marriage is designed to be a lifetime covenant between a man and a woman. He says in Malachi that he hates divorce. Jesus was, was clear that divorce was only allowed as an option because of the hardness of the human heart. And yet God does permit divorce under certain circumstances. And he does not charge us with sin if we divorce under those circumstances. In other words, he says, I hate it, but sometimes the least bad option is a divorce. And so if you're going to do it, you're going to do it this way and under these rules. And I think that's actually how the Bible views slavery. Nowhere in Scripture are people commanded by God to take slaves, even among those who are defeated in battle. And so even though he doesn't forbid slavery, he also doesn't say it's a good thing. And so in that respect, I think it's a lot like the statement Jesus makes about divorce being permitted because of the hardness of your hearts. God recognizes that in the real world, a marriage can be so damaged by the actions of one party that it's just not possible or advisable for the other party to continue in it. And that's just how things are in a fallen and sinful world. Likewise, for reasons I mentioned in the beginning, in a fallen world where people are incapable of relying on God and the presence and power of his kingdom to solve these basic problems presented to them in life, slavery is just going to happen. And it might even be a lesser evil than some of the other evils that will occur otherwise. But, says God, if you're going to do it, you have to conduct yourselves in this way. And the Old Testament gives a lot of very detailed commandments about how you are to treat an enslaved person. And it takes some of the, some of the worst excesses out of it if you obey those commandments. But there's also another thread running beneath the surface of the Scriptures, and it's the most important one. 
In the Old Testament, one of the key stories that formed the identity of the Jewish people was, of course, the story of slavery in Egypt. And, and it was not just slavery. I mean, it was slavery, but it was slavery plus genocide. We're going to kill all the male babies right when they're born. Uh, any that escape, we're going to work to death. We're basically going to destroy these people by working them to death. And that's, we're going to get rid of them from our midst, and we're going to get some stuff done. And so that was, I mean, it was a particularly horrible form of slavery. And, and, and God hearing them in their groaning and seeing the horror of it and, and graciously liberating them from bondage in Egypt in the story of the Exodus is a key thing in the Bible. It's like one of the, one of the big stories where God reveals who he is and what he's like. And over and over again in the Old Testament, God says to his people, treat vulnerable people kindly because you know what it was like. You know what it was like to be a slave. So treat a slave kindly. You, you were once aliens and strangers in Egypt. The alien or the stranger that's coming among you is a vulnerable person. Treat them kindly. Rule them with the same rule of law that you rule the Jewish people so that they know what goodness and righteousness is. And there's not one set of rules for the Jews and another set of rules for other people. Everybody's under the same rules. God also says very clearly in the Old Testament that you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. And of course, the corollary to that is you wouldn't like it and didn't like it when you were pressed into slavery, maybe you should not do it to others. And that logic was so relentless and it was so uncomfortable that the Jews tried to find a way around it. And we see this very clearly when Jesus takes on some of these issues and, and we see Jesus refute it. The, the rabbis... Uh, on, whose commentary in the Old Testament scriptures became known as the Talmud, taught on this passage that your neighbor was only your fellow Jewish person. And so they said things like, and you hear Jesus addressing this, you shall love your neighbor and you shall hate your enemy. And all the Gentiles, all, they're all dogs. They're your enemies. So you should hate all of them. And if you know your Bibles, you know that in Matthew 7, verses 43 through 48, Jesus deals explicitly with that when he says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. And he takes up this issue again in Luke chapter 11 when he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is a response to a scribe or a lawyer who put him to the test. And the lawyer asked him, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the law. What does it say? And the man says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you're right. If you can do that, you will live. 
Because if you loved God like that, you'd never sin against him. And if you loved your neighbor like that, you'd never sin against him. And so if you could do that, then you could go to heaven on your works because you'd be totally sinless. But the man knew that he hadn't done that. And the scripture says, and desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who do I have to love? And who can I get away with not loving? In other words, if I can dramatically shrink the pool of people I have to love as I love myself, maybe I can deceive myself into thinking I'm a righteous person. But in telling that parable of the Good Samaritan, the answer Jesus gave was essentially, everybody on the whole planet is your neighbor. You see, when you're going to treat someone badly, when you're going to treat them hatefully, when you're going to treat them in a way that you yourself wouldn't want to be treated, your mind has a hard time dealing with that. It can't take the implications of that because it's the psychological equivalent of looking at yourself in a mirror and discovering that you are hideous and deformed when you were trying to convince yourself that you're beautiful. And so what you have to do is lie to yourself is to convince yourself that this other person somehow deserves the bad things that you're doing to them. That they are evil and deserve nothing better. They are stupid. They are inferior. That's why it's okay to treat them in this way. And so you begin behaving hatefully so that you can gin up enough self-righteousness to hurt them and justify yourself. C.S. Lewis noted this psychological phenomenon in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, the Germans, perhaps at first, ill-treated the Jews because they hated them. Afterwards, they hated them much more because they had ill-treated them. Have you ever done this? Have you ever um, just, you get mad at somebody and you find yourself exaggerating how bad they are and it starts to spread to all kinds of things about their moral character and, and, and you're, you're just like, I'm mad at this person and I don't like this person and I need to find every single thing that's wrong with this person even if I have to invent it and bring it out in the open so that I can feel good about being mad at this person. We do that. Well, individuals do it. And whole groups of individuals do it. And so we got that going on. And then God also shatters all of the other boundaries that people erect, the boundaries that have nothing to do with sin. And it's, it's fascinating to read your New Testament if you understood how much the Jews were stuck on the idea that we are the only people on the planet that God likes and that he's doing anything with, and that's because we're so special and superior. It was, they were very hard time breaking themselves of that notion. And you see that in the, some of the book of Acts and the controversies in the book of Acts. Well, a Jewish man in Paul's day would wake up every morning and he would pray. And he would say, God, I thank you that you did not make me a woman, a Gentile, or a slave. And that was the preferred order. It was better to be a woman than it was to be a Gentile. And it was better to be a Gentile than it was to be a slave. Now, Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. So you know he prayed that prayer from childhood on up. 
And, and is it not a remarkable testimony to the transformational power of Christ that he could take that prayer and repudiate every line of it in the eternal scriptures by writing, in Christ there is no Jew or Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. Writer Thomas Cahill says that is the first expression of egalitarianism in human history. Nobody had ever thought like that. They took it for granted that their group was the best group. And anybody that fell on hard times fell on hard times because they deserved it, and you should exploit them if at all possible because they deserve nothing better. That's how people thought. Aristotle said there are some people who by their mental capacity or physical capacity or whatever are only fit to be slaves. And so if anybody's a slave, it's probably because they deserve it. That's the position that's sort of ordained for them by their gifting. That was the ethic of the most advanced people on the planet who were thinking about ethics. So the early church is the first community in human history where masters and slaves were regarded as fundamentally equal in Christ. Where masters literally washed the feet of slaves in public worship that had never happened before. In, in the, the writing of the rabbis and in the writing of the secular Greeks and, and Romans, you hear nothing but these notes of contempt for slaves. They're barely human. They're not human. They're awful people. They deserve this. You never hear that in the New Testament. There's no hint of it. So you see what Jesus is doing here, don't you? He, he says, okay, guys, love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, just so there's no escape hatch, everyone on the planet is your neighbor. But your neighbor, who also belongs to Christ, is not just your neighbor. That's your brother or sister in Christ. And, and you have an extra duty to love them. So you should love them like family. They're your brother. They're your sister. So the, that slave over there is now your sister in Christ. You have an extra strong duty to love her and seek her well-being under God. And that master over there is your brother, and you have a duty to love him and seek his well-being under God. And when you truly pursue that, it pours sand in the gears of the whole system of slavery. It jams up the machinery. You just can't do it. You cannot turn around and say, I love you, you're my brother in Christ, you are special in my eyes and in God's eyes, and I'm going to keep you as a slave and abuse you and exploit you. This doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. And, and that's the only real way to solve the issue. Because the only other way to attempt to solve it is just seek power and overthrow it and impose power and, and brutality. And, and when you start thinking about the, the, the ancient Roman Empire, it's estimated that 30% of the people who were living in the Roman Empire were slaves. And the Romans were terrified that they would revolt. And they did revolt several times in history. The, the rich Romans had a, had a proverb, so many slaves, so many enemies. And so they were vicious towards their slaves. There's a story from Seneca about a man who had, a very rich man who had a lot of slaves who served, especially at dinner parties. Like that was their whole function, was dinner parties. 
And if they, they were to stand there and to, to do what they were supposed to do, but, but they were never to make any noise. And if one even sneezed or coughed, they would beat him within an inch of his life just for coughing. That's how they treated their slaves in the Roman Empire. And so they were vicious towards them. And in about 73 BC, there was a, a gladiator named Spartacus who initially just was trying to escape. And he tried to escape with about 200 other slaves that were, uh, that were uh, um, in the arena. They were to fight for their, till the death. And uh, he inadvertently ended up leading a rebellion because everybody was like, holy cow, he killed all the, the, the keepers in the, in, the, in the school for the, the, the gladiator games. And he's running around the country and nobody can stop him. And all the slaves just came and joined themselves to him. They said, this is our best chance at freedom ever. And by the end of the revolt, he had 120,000 slaves under his command. And that doesn't count people that were mounted on horseback. And so this uprising became known as the Third Servile War. And the Romans were very alarmed. They sent the army in and they killed everybody except 6,000. So from 120,000 people down to 6,000, they slaughtered everybody in the most painful way possible. Then they took that 6,000 and they brought them to Rome and they crucified them along the road between Rome and this town called Caputa. 6,000. And they left them to hang there for years as a warning to any other slave that would walk by about what would happen if you tried to revolt. 120,000 people dead, and it accomplished nothing but making even the Romans even more afraid of slave revolts and therefore making them even more brutal towards their slaves. And along comes the early church. And the early church had no political power, and it knew it. It didn't have any military power. It didn't have any worldly authority. It didn't have any influence at all on the broader culture. It was composed, actually, of the early Christian church was composed of lots and lots of slaves. And even if it had been the early church's goal to abolish slavery in the Roman Empire, they wouldn't have been able to. But more importantly, Jesus gave them no mandate to do so. Jesus gave another mandate to the church. Now, we need to understand something, loved ones, and I need you to hear me on this. The Bible is not a blueprint for making the world a better place. The Bible is not a blueprint for making the world a better place. The Bible was not given to make better nations or better political systems. The Bible was given to make better people. People who routinely do what everyone knows to be right most of the time from out of a transformed heart. Now, since the main problem with the world is the actions that habitually arise from a corrupted heart, then you can see why the only real solution is Jesus' solution. Because a corrupted heart will seek out every possible way to undermine even the best laws and even the best designed political systems. There just aren't enough policemen in the world to enforce a law that nobody wants to obey, that everybody wants to disregard. 
It was interesting, when I lived in Cincinnati, there was a little spur that went into downtown from the kind of the, the Beltway Highway. And that spur, the, uh, the speed limit dropped from 65 miles an hour down to 55 the minute you got on that highway. And it was right into downtown, so there was a lot of traffic on that highway at rush hour. And everybody flew through there. I mean, the cops came and they were giving out tickets right and left, didn't matter, fume, fume, fume. So finally they just gave in and they raised the speed limit to 65, thinking that'll keep everybody happy. You know what everybody did? They drove 85. It's like, and so there was a cartoon in the paper, how fast do you want to drive? And the answer was 10 miles an hour faster than you want me to, right? It, and that's how we are. You can put the limits wherever you want. People will ignore them. They will undermine them. They will do everything they can. And that's just in your car. Try and enforce a tax code or a, or a, a, a judicial system. It's just... That's how it is in the corrupted world. And the Bible's not intended to fix that because unbelieving people can't. Untransformed people can't. And so to give them a whole bunch of oughts that they can't and won't do ends up doing nothing. The Bible is designed to change people. And it doesn't take, according to Jesus, a very high percentage of truly changed people within a society who have truly transformed hearts to make a profound difference in that society. That's why Jesus refers to the community of his apprentices as salt. Do you know how much salt it takes to preserve a pound of meat? Less than half an ounce. Just less than half an ounce of salt will preserve a pound of meat. Therefore, the most effective thing that we can do to fix our nation is to fix the church. That's what I've been going on about for going on four years now. The only way to fix our country is to fix ourselves first. And then to go out into the world and to spread it. And you think that'll never happen. That could, loved ones, from the time that Jesus gave the Great Commission. Start off with a very small group of people that had no power, no influence, no education, no money, no resources. Took that little group of people. Within 300 years, half of the citizens in the cities around the Mediterranean basin were Christian. That has never happened before in human history. But it's our faith that did it. There's no reason why it can't happen again if we will do as they did. There's just no reason at all. It, it, according to census statistics, 25%, one quarter of Americans identify as born-again Christians. And yet America stinks worse and worse of societal and moral decay each and every year. Surely a quarter of a pound of salt would make a noticeable difference on a pound of meat. But it hasn't. We are, collectively, the salt that's lost its savor that Jesus talked about. We've lost our saltiness, and we need to get our saltiness back. Now, now we're almost done, and I just want to stick a few facts on at the end here, somewhat awkwardly, because I, I couldn't weave them in anywhere else. And I, and I only mention this because one of the strategies that modern Bible translators have come up with is to obscure something that's important. 
The, the words servant and bond servant are euphemisms. The Greek word behind almost 100% of them is the Greek word doulos, which is slave. The word is slave. All right? So with that in mind, consider the following. Number one, God keeps slaves. God keeps slaves. Paul opens up many of his letters by identifying himself as a doulos, a slave of Christ. To be a Christian is to be a slave. Not a servant, a slave. You understand the difference, don't you? A servant works his eight hours, takes his pay, goes home, does what he wants with his free time. A slave is at the disposal of his master 24-7. You and I are God's slaves. That's what, that's what the Bible talks about us as, as God's slaves. Second of all, Jesus tells us that his, as his disciples, we are also to be slaves to our fellow disciples. And he uses the word doulos, slave. We find this in Mark chapter 10. And uh, verse 42. And Jesus called to them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. The first word must be your servant. That's the word diakonos, which is where we get our word deacon. The deacons are servants, helpers. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Which leads to the, the final point that I just want to awkwardly stick on here at the end. Jesus took on the role, the form, the appearance of a slave. In uh, Philippians, in chapter 2, we have a, a, a passage that we read over and over again here. It's one of the most profound passages in the Bible. Ephesians, Ephesians. There's Philippians. thought it had escaped. Philippians chapter 2. Listen to this. Have this mind in you, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a doulos, a slave, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus was a slave, took on the form of a slave, stripped off all of his clothes at the Last Supper, and took up the basin and the towel, that was the job of the lowest slave in the household and washed his disciples' feet 
and said, this is how you become great in the kingdom of heaven. You lower yourself and become like a slave. And when we do that, we most resemble the Lord Jesus Christ. These issues are much more complex than we think they are. And it's much harder sometimes to understand what we're being told so we clear away the cobwebs. But the way up in the kingdom of God is always down. And God always exalts those who humble themselves. And he always humbles those who exalt themselves. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. 